everybody. This is David Green. I'm the co-founder of Fearless Media, and I'm your host here on Left, Right, and Center, the show where we take on all the political issues, even those complicated ones that might be dividing your own family these days. And we're going to start with one that is really complicated. Could sometimes strike people as boring, but we're going to make sure it doesn't strike you as that. Today, it is super important. So we're going to be talking about the debt ceiling. Already, the Biden administration and House Republicans are in this standoff over whether the United States government can keep paying its bills and the stability of the global economy could be hanging in the balance. The Treasury Department started to enact so-called extraordinary measures this week in order to keep paying the federal government's bills as it hit the debt ceiling. This is a borrowing cap set by law, though we should say this is sort of like whether or not the ball crossed the plane of the end zone in football. It's not entirely clear whether we've gone past the debt limit yet, but it looks like maybe, possibly, we have. So the government's debt currently stands at a whopping $31.4 trillion. Now, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has to suspend some investments and exchange other types of debt to try and keep the cash flowing, but that's going to only last for so long. It's now up to Congress to raise or suspend the debt ceiling so that the government doesn't run out of cash, which honestly could destabilize financial markets and push the whole world into economic chaos. I'm being a little flip, but, you know, nothing important here. So if we look back at history, raising the debt ceiling has been an easy vote for legislators, but it's become a political game of chicken recently. Yellen sent a letter to Congress last week urging lawmakers to raise the debt ceiling and saying that she might exhaust all of her extraordinary options as soon as June. But negotiations between the White House and House Republicans already seem to be at a standstill. Republicans want to cut spending for entitlement programs such as Medicare and Social Security, while the Biden administration said the limit should be raised without conditions like that. And so we could be in a standoff that could last for months. So where's this all going to go? Let's talk to our panel. We have Moa Lathy back. He's executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. He was communications director for the Democratic National Committee and advised Hillary Clinton. And Sarah Isger is here. She's a lawyer who was spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump and is now senior editor at The Dispatch. Mo, Sarah, thanks for being here as always. Great to be back. Hello. Can we just start, like, why should we care about the debt ceiling? Let's just start with a basic question. I'm not totally sure we should. And let me just clarify that. Of course we should. I'm not sure how much we should. So, for instance, in 2011, we were having the exact same conversation we're having now. Um, And in fact, things didn't come close to the edge. They went over the ledge. And so much so that the S&P downgraded the United States credit rating for the first time. It had a real effect. Nevertheless, here we are more than 10 years later. Um, We're not, you know, renting our clothes and talking about how if only we had raised the debt ceiling on time in 2011, none of this ever would have happened. On the other hand, I also think it's worth noting that it's also not like we're like, and thankfully, by not raising the debt ceiling on time, we were able to curb our spending and save the United States from taking on more borrowing from China. Nothing, no good came of it, if that makes sense. But also nothing catastrophic came of it either. Um, And so I think that at this point, the world's economy is in a different place than it was in 2011. However, remember in 2011, we were still coming off the 2008 financial crash. Yeah. Um, so there's it's a very different economic situation, but there are similarities, if that makes sense, um, which is 
All to say, this could have very different consequences in the world economy, of course. But I do wonder if a lot of the hyperventilation is helpful to partisans on both sides and helps elevate the temperature of the partisan conversation without actually illuminating much, if you will. Well, I mean, one reason that that it's, I don't know, politically useful, I feel like, is because debt is something that, you know, as a as a subject matter is so relatable to a lot of people. Like, you know, you think about your own finances, your own family. It's like debt is bad and you try and reduce your debt. And if you cross a certain line, you might never be able to catch up. You might go bankrupt and have to make some really hard financial choices. I mean, Mo, is it is it fair for people to think about it in those terms? Um, or is that just the reality that politicians are taking advantage of the fact that that a lot of people feel the subject of debt personally, but we shouldn't be making that connection at all when it comes to, you know, the debt of our country. Now, look, this is a big deal. And it's something that I do think people can wrap their heads around to some extent. Both parties believe right now that people will wrap their heads around it in a way that's favorable to them. Republicans are trying to say that we should not raise the debt limit and agree to pay our bills unless we couple it with cutting spending. Well, that sounds reasonable to a lot of people. At the same time, the administration believes that most people can wrap their heads around the fact that if you don't pay your bills, you default. And by defaulting, that puts you in a really bad place. And it will put us in a really bad place. We danced up to the edge 10 years ago. I don't think we actually went over the edge. We danced right up to the edge, and that was enough to downgrade our credit rating as a nation for the first time uh, ever. If, you know, independent economists and studies show that if we actually fail to do this, if we actually do not increase the debt ceiling, we will not be we will not have the money to pay things that we are obligated to pay. Those things include military pay. Those things include social security payments. So the government then will have to decide and prioritize which of those things to pay. Do you want to not pay social security or do you not want to pay the military salaries? That doesn't even account for the economy going into recession, which is uh, which is what most economists predict would happen. That doesn't account for the fact that we could lose up to 6 million jobs and uh, send the unemployment rate up and, uh, and hit people's pensions and retirement accounts. So there are very real negative consequences that don't just impact the government, but could impact the economy and people in their homes. That's a real problem. I think it is always legitimate for Congress to argue with itself, for the parties to argue over how much spending the federal government is doing. Ironically, a lot of the Republicans right now who are trying to become budget hawks were remarkably silent when the debt went up by huge amounts under the Trump administration. They, you didn't hear them complaining then. But Worse than silent. They were complicit in it. Right? They, that is a normal debate. That's the kind of debate we should be having. You know, so much of our history has been rooted uh, uh, in the debate over what is the appropriate size and scope of government, and spending is part of that. 
But to hold hostage the full faith and credit of the United States, to risk sending us into recession, to risk driving up the unemployment rate, and to risk not paying our obligations that would have real impact in people's lives, that is not something we should be doing. Sarah, I I mean, it's really easy to look at the Republican arguments about, you know, you have to cut entitlement programs um, as part of this, as just pure politics and using the the kind of stress of this moment um, to, to do something that they, they just want to do. I mean, is there any counter narrative? Is there any world in which it is fair from a policy standpoint to make the argument that in order to, to put the nation's pocketbook in a better place, you should be looking at cuts to these entitlement programs? Because that, that's such a line in the sand for Democrats, obviously. And it's just hard to accept that that argument from Republicans is anything other than politics. Mo is talking about the United States deciding not to raise the debt ceiling and the impact that would have if we're just like, nope, we're not going to do it. Next right. question. But that's not really what's being talked about right now. The Republicans aren't saying we never want to raise the debt ceiling. They're saying we're happy to raise the debt ceiling in exchange for serious cuts in spending. But it, you know, to Mo's point about all these catastrophic things that can happen, but nobody's making the argument that they want to do that version. The question is how long these negotiations last, what has to happen in the interim where Janet Yellen, you know, plays fun QuickBooks math. But is it fair for Republicans to bring in the entitlement programs into this conversation? Or is it, is, I mean, what, like- so here's the problem. You cannot seriously tackle the United States spending problem if you're not willing to look at defense spending and entitlements. Now, Republicans are saying defense spending's off the table. That's politically convenient, unquestionably. But to say that entitlements have to be off the table for Democrats is equally silly because this is where the spending is. And Social Security in particular, talk about a can that keeps getting kicked down the road. Um, So the idea that we can't do anything with Social Security because it's going so well um, is pretty silly. I mean, but as you sort of hint at, it's part of a much larger conversation than just let's slash social security and move forward. But I do think this idea that the White House has said, for instance, um, we're simply not going to negotiate. It has to be a a clean debt ceiling increase is also silly. Look, Republicans control the House. Of course you need to negotiate. And this idea that it's just um, absolutely insane to talk about whether you should cut spending for next month when your credit card bill just came in and you owe more than you're taking in, yeah, now is probably the time to talk about that stuff. I take most point that that conversation can't go on forever, but it takes two to tango on this. The Democrats are the ones saying they don't want to talk about any ways that we might cut spending in the future. And Republicans, I tend to agree with you, should probably put more things on the table if they're serious about it. And I think there's a real conversation that Republicans are only serious about it when there's a Democrat in the White House. And frankly, Democrats have been serious about it when there's a Republican in the White House. Don't forget, Barack Obama voted against lifting the debt ceiling in 2006, a vote he no doubt deeply regrets. <laughs> um, but Republicans massively you know, brought this home during Obama's administration about how important it was to cut spending. And then Donald Trump gets into office and they're drunken sailors with a checkbook. But let's let's add a, a, a dose of of a health a healthy dose of political reality into this conversation. Why I, I get where where the White House is coming from. Um, 
like we're there. We're dancing real up close to the line. Treasury Secretary this week set off all the alarm bells that we are just about there. We can be creative for a little bit of time, but there's not a long period of time before we run out of the money to pay our bills. Sure, we can say, yeah, this is a great time to look down the road. But politically, is there any scenario where we think both parties can come together before we run out of money and say, you know what? Yeah, here's where we can agree to cut spending. I don't think that happens in a short period of time, not fast enough for us to avoid going over the cliff. And so the White House saying, let's avoid the cliff. Let's steer away from the cliff. Let's make sure we raise this so we can pay the bills. Then let them duke it out over spending. But to hold the debt limit hostage while negotiations are going on over spending in this political climate with this uh, dynamic between Congress and the White House is just a recipe for disaster. Let's have the conversation about spending. But Mo, what, what, what couldn't the White House say we're willing to have a conversation about entitlement programs as a way to open the door to, to solve this crisis? Like, don't, don't Democrats have to own some of the kind of, you know, that they're using this for politics? I mean, that the president could say, fine, I'm open to talking about entitlement programs, which is not something that that is really good for him politically or the party, but isn't that something that he could put on the table? I think what the president is trying to do is say we're not going to we're not going to put any conditions on making sure we pay the bills that we are already legally obligated to do. Let's divorce our current legal obligations from conversations about the future. Because once you start allowing any conditions on it, right, we're, we, we have the potential to go down a path that could be catastrophic down the road. We've already seen what can happen in this Congress, when a small number of members decide to hold the entire process hostage. And that was just on a process thing. What happens when it does come down to something this big? If they start accepting any conditions on what they are already obligated to spend on, then uh, I think the floodgates open in a very dangerous way. Keep them separate conversations. And, and I, I mean, I do think it's worth pointing out just to help our, our listeners understand as they'll be hearing about this in, in coming months, like the, the hyperventilating is as dangerous as, as crashing through the debt ceiling is. I mean, that's one reason that, that, you know, credit ratings go down because the United States just looks like they can't solve problems. Um, so the, a prolonged political battle, the hyperventilating, if this becomes, you know, a prolonged proxy war that both parties are using to have debates over other stuff like entitlement programs, like defense spending, all those fights in themselves could actually be as as dangerous um, as going past the, the debt ceiling. Okay, the, I'm sure we'll be talking about this much more as we go on. Uh, we'll leave it there and we'll be back to talk uh, in a moment about uh, renewed power from the far right as they have had members uh, reappointed to House committees uh, with the Republicans having that slim majority in the House now. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. We're back again with more Left, Right, and Center. I'm David Green. Mo Alethi and Sarah Isger are here. Mo was communications director at the DNC. Sarah was spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. Well, they are back 
Republican troublemakers and far-right representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar were once again granted seats on House committees this week after Kevin McCarthy stepped into his role as House Speaker. Greene of Georgia and Gosar of Arizona were among two of the Republican lawmakers kicked off committees in 2021 by Democratic-led Congress due to inflammatory and extreme remarks. Green is going to sit on the Homeland Security Committee and Gosar on the House Natural Resources Committee. They will both notably be on the House Oversight and Accountability Committee and have announced their intention to investigate President Biden over Hunter Biden, the border, COVID, and lots of stuff. Sarah, you know, it's clear based on Marjorie Taylor Greene's recent comments that she's still an anti-establishment member of the GOP. She she aims to disrupt things as much as possible. But are we seeing a different side of her in a way after, you know, she apologized for some of those offensive comments that she made? You know, she has this alliance now with Kevin McCarthy, it seems at least during his bid to, to become speaker. Is, are, are we seeing something different? It certainly interesting. I don't know if it's different. And, you know, on that list, you also left out that she has a beef with one of the other disruptors or whatever we want to call them, Lauren Boebert, the congresswoman from Colorado who barely, barely won re-election. Barely, barely won to get back in, yeah. Uh, so, and they have some sort of dispute that I don't, I'm, you know, there's only so much I'm willing to get on the weeds in this stuff. Um, so, yes, I, but again, I'm not sure if it's different or if it's just we're seeing it. Um, but what I think is interesting about this is that that was the tool that Democrats picked in order to sort of show their partisan displeasure with some of these Republicans. But if the point was to actually change behavior or punish, it didn't do those things. Marjorie Taylor Greene skyrocketed in name identification, fame, and don't forget fundraising. She raised $3 million in just, uh, you know, the weeks following her being stripped of her committeeship, and they freed up a lot of her time to go raise even more money, to go become more famous in Republican circles. So uh, it's not that I um, disapprove of the idea that you should find ways to give poorly performing members timeouts, but you should make sure it's actually a punishment. I mean, Mo, that speaks to kind of a big question for for the Biden White House, for Democrats in general. You know, it's we talked a lot about... Um, candidates and and the people that run for office, you know, that that matters in elections. Now we have, you know, more extreme members who are serving on committees, you know, and what does Joe Biden do here? You know, I mean, he obviously is, you know, courts people like Mitch McConnell and moderates in some ways and did an event with McConnell. But what is what is the message? How does the White House handle members like Marjorie Taylor Greene when saying bad things about her could embolden her and lead to more fundraising for Republicans. Yeah, look, well, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, a, a couple of points. Number one, the, this president, going back to the camp, the midterm campaign, was trying to draw a distinction, rhetorically at least, between regular Republicans and extreme MAGA Republicans. And in some ways, trying to say to um, a lot of Republican voters, um, that it's okay to not buy into this extreme MAGA perspective. Um, in the past, over the past couple of years, while stripping her and, and folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene of committee assignments certainly um, 
increased their name ID and their fundraising and elevated them into a new status, they were also in the minority. So there was actually very little damage they could do in with their job. Now, they did a lot of damage to our national discourse, but there wasn't a lot they could do in Congress. Now they're in the majority. Now you have someone who um, openly questioned whether or not the Pentagon was hit on 9-11 and who has talked about wildfires in California being caused by Jewish space lasers and who openly talked about how if uh, she and Steve Bannon were armed on January 6th and in charge, they could have won the insurrection, is now on both House Oversight and House Homeland Security Committees. This is a person who is going to help drive the debate, and we have already seen that by offering her support early to Kevin McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy feels a bit beholden to her. And so the damage now actually could be real with what she does and what they do as a, as a group, despite their internal rifts, what they do as a group when they know they've got the speaker somewhat beholden to them. I think you're going to see the White House continue to point all these things out. I think you're going to see the White House making a political uh, argument against them and who they are in in the hopes that that actually turns public opinion against some of the stuff that they're going to do on House oversight. But now that they're in the majority, it, it's a bit of a different story. But David, this is a little bit my point. It was in Democrats' interest to have Marjorie Taylor Greene as a significant voice in the Republican Party. So when they stripped her of the committeeship and up her name ID and her fundraising— that not only helped Marjorie Taylor Greene, it helped Democrats. And, you know, most pointing out how Biden was trying to create a permission structure for Republicans to reject extreme MAGA Republicans. At the same time, Chuck Schumer was spending $50 million to make sure those extreme MAGA Republicans got through primaries and beat out more moderate Republicans so that they could then run against them and have Democrats elected in the general election. So the idea that this isn't a cynical move from the left— I, I don't buy that at all. It is it is politically helpful to them, just like what Mo said. They want her on that committee so they can then use that to discredit the committee's work. Uh, understandably so, but let's not pretend it's, you know, for some good of the country reason here. It's to help Democrats. Not going to lie. That's a good point, Mo. I mean, I, 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 I mean isn't there political benefit in, in keeping Marjorie Taylor Greene there as, as an enemy? Um, pure partisan benefit? Uh, yeah. Sure, it's in Democrats' interest to have Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates be the face of the Republican Party moving into a next election. Um, but I also think that, um, I don't think that's necessarily in the White House's benefit. And I think this is a president who actually, I, I know Sarah's very fond of recalling this Chuck Schumer and Senate Democrats' decision and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And I've spoken out often against that move on this show as well. Including here. I mean, the idea of spending money to, to put extreme candidates I mean, in I the general election. I do not agree with that. Right. But I do think that this president, right, looking at the battle between the White House and House Republicans moving forward. I do think this is a president who does feel that this is a group that betrays the sensibilities of what our 
government should be and should be doing. And so, you know, hell yeah, he's going to run hard against them. Hell yeah, he's going to point out these challenges because I think he sees it as both politically beneficial, but also the right thing to do. Um, and so, uh, you know, buckle up, folks. Like, we're in for, a, you know, quite quite the fight. You know, I did this, bear with me, I, I went through this strange exercise um, before doing the show today. I was trying to take kind of politics out of it as much as I could and try and understand Marjorie Taylor Greene as a elected lawmaker. And so I went to her website for like her house office website to see what was like featured there. And it was two things. It was a bill to, to quote, protect the innocence of children, which is actually a, a transphobic bill that would, would restrict access to gender affirming surgeries and procedures for a lot of people in our country. Um, it was that, and it was impeach Joe Biden. And I went to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's website to see just what was there, like open-minded. And what was at the top were supporting nurses in the Bronx um, and, you know, programs to get funding for programs in in her district. Um, you know, take parties out of it. Those are two very different approaches to being a lawmaker. And it makes me wonder, like, Marjorie Taylor Greene, like we talk about her appeal. We talk about she raises lots of money. She does that on some of those very issues. But like what, Sarah, what, is she, what does she stand for policy-wise, ideologically? Like, well, I mean, I guess I want to— or, or is this a wing of the party that is just all about yelling and screaming and saying we should impeach Joe Biden and, and you know, just diving into these really incendiary social and cultural issues? So let's be clear. Setting websites aside— um, uh, the nonpartisan, I think it's the University of Virginia and University of Pennsylvania did a study on effectiveness of lawmakers, and they found that AOC was one of the least effective lawmakers in Congress, that of the 22 bills that she has proposed, not a single one has even gotten a vote at committee, let alone made it to the floor for a vote or anything like that. The majority of the bills she's co-sponsored, et cetera, are, you know, the renaming of post office type things. So, Websites aside, if you actually want to talk about effectiveness, AOC and Marjorie Taylor Greene are probably about the same level of effectiveness. But I think your point is something about the what the two extremes of the parties think is politically advantageous to them to message. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that does say something about where the base of those two sets of voters are, that AOC's voters— and by, I don't mean like literally her congressional voters at this point, though, again, the people who are actually going to visit your website probably are constituents. Yeah. The people who are going to give you the $5 and stuff are going to your social media platform. So in that sense, I find the website's probably not that helpful. But I mean, most of what AOC is going to talk about are going to be pet democratic issues. I mean, gas stoves, anyone <laughs> that have no chance, like either she doesn't have any influence over, have no chance of going anywhere or feed some sort of left-wing culture war. On the right, the exact same thing is happening with Marjorie Taylor Greene, certainly. I just think, David, that you find those culture war things to be more offensive than you do the things on the left. Well, I mean, there weren't, I, I'm, and again, I, I, I agree that looking at someone's website does not tell you everything. Um, but it's just, you know, clearly AOC wants to message that she's helping her district. Marjorie Taylor Greene wants to focus on very different things. 
And I think the point that Sarah made is really interesting. Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy both had about the same size majority, right? A handful of votes. The swing wasn't that big. They both had a, a majority of, of about a handful of votes. When Nancy Pelosi was speaker, where you saw the power center in the House, despite everything they say on Fox News, despite everything that you say, you, you, you hear messaged from the Republicans, it was not the far left, was not the power center, right? The fact that AOC was not getting her bills passed shows that Nancy Pelosi kept the, the, the gravity uh, at the political center. And that's what was driving a lot of the stuff. The far right was marginalized. The far left was not empowered. The question I have now is now that you have a new speaker from a new party with a similar majority, will that continue to be the case? Will he be able to do what Pelosi did, which was keep, you know, sort of manage the influence of the extreme within his own party and really elevate the voice of the center? Or is he going to feel beholden to those people because of what he just went through to get the speakership? And will you see them have a louder voice and an outsized influence? I don't think, and I think Sarah would probably agree with this, I do not think the, the, the center right in the House is all that thrilled with how much attention the far right gets. Absolutely agree with but that. will they be more empowered under a Speaker McCarthy than the, than the far left was under a Speaker Pelosi? That's a big question. Okay, we're going to leave it there with those big questions as we follow where this Congress goes uh, with McCarthy as Speaker. Uh, Sarah and Mo and I will be back to talk about uh, the role, what role the United States has in Israel and that country's move, uh, it seems, towards a theocracy. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. Thanks for listening to Left, Right, and Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are back with Left, Right, and Center. I'm your host, David Green. I'm with Sarah Isger, Senior Editor at The Dispatch, and Moa Lathy, Executive Director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. So this big debate over the future of democracy in the world uh, is now focusing in large part on Israel. A new far-right government has formed with the return of former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He's trying to overhaul the country's judicial system and weaken its Supreme Court, and that has led to massive protests, warning of the end of democracy in that country. And also we saw a call in a New York Times op-ed this week for President Biden to help and save Israel. For decades, we should say the U.S.-Israel relationship was strong. I mean, you saw both Republicans and Democrats united behind one of the few allies in that region. But more recently, as with most all political issues these days, U.S. support for Israel has split more along party lines. Netanyahu has not hid his criticism of Democrats or his alliance with the American right throughout Donald Trump's presidency. And at the same time, Democrats like New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Georgia Senator John Ossoff began 
speaking up loudly to criticize Israel, specifically Israeli violence against Palestinians, pushing this issue to the fore within the Democratic Party. So with Netanyahu back in office, more right wing than ever, the question of what the United States can and should be doing uh, is really taking a spotlight. Mo, I guess I I wonder, you know, President Biden has been so cautious when it comes to pushing back on Israel. He's he's alluded to the fact that he, when he does act, he does so quietly, keeps, you know, conversations behind the scenes, but he is facing a, a progressive wing of the party that's pushing harder and harder against unchallenged support for Israel. And now that we see these, you know, frightening changes in the country, what what should President Biden be doing? Um, I think diplomacy continues to be the right course of action. I think, you know, the position of this administration seems to be that we can support, you know, what was his exact quote, I think, I believe that Palestinians and Israelis equally deserve to live safely and securely and to enjoy equal measures of freedom, prosperity, and democracy. That is the position of of the Biden administration. That's sort of a long-held American position that should continue to be the position of the American government. Um, We have taken on some Israeli policies in the past. For example, when it came to settlements where the U.S. government was afraid that that would inflame uh, tensions between the Israelis and the Palestinians, the United States has taken clear stands that the Israeli government didn't love but continued to work uh, through diplomatic means and show support for our greatest ally in the region. I don't think that changes. Yes, there are some people on the far left that would like to see a more aggressive pushback on uh, the Israeli government generally and this uh, new government in particular. And the Netanyahu government certainly uh, gives plenty of reason uh, for some to criticize. But just because we've got differences doesn't make us any less pro-Israel no matter how much political opponents would like to paint it that way. This is also a president, if you remember, who criticized the most uh, recent past prime minister of the UK for some of uh, her economic policies, that no one accused us of being any less pro-UK. Um, so I think, I, I think, well, there are going to be some on the left who take a more aggressive stand. I don't think that's where a majority of the Democratic Party is, and I don't think that's where a majority of the country is. I think most people agree that we can critique uh, the Israeli government, uh, that we can support Palestine while still being a steadfast friend to Israel. Um, But we should call out the Israeli government when it does things that are that we believe is not in the interest of of peace and which and, is right now right i mean which is right Biden now. be doing more calling out i mean I, I guess that's what you know tom friedman and the new york times and others are saying like president biden like this is your moment israel's going down an incredibly dangerous path for itself for that region for the world for the united states i mean i mean let's also be clear let's also remember this is not an israeli prime minister who has been kind 
to Democrats, right? I mean, he famously came at the at the invitation of a Republican Congress to speak in the U.S. House of Representatives to a joint session of Congress and blast— and openly criticize the Iran nuclear deal and the, and the Obama right? administration. To yeah. openly blast the Obama administration because he disagreed. So this is—the the tensions between the two, I think, are going to be higher than normal. Uh, particularly after the Trump administration, where President Trump said Netanyahu could do no wrong. But um, whether he does that publicly or privately is the question. And I think this is a new Israeli government. Let's try the quiet approach first before there's any escalation. I'm fascinated by this conversation, and my head sort of swirls around a few different issues. One— and accepting everything that Mo just said, though it's going to sound like I'm kind of rejecting it, um, but accepting everything Mo just said that the vast majority of Democrats, you know, support the existence of Israel, et cetera. Nevertheless, there is a partisan tinge to all of the conversations around Israel at this point, even if it's a minority of of Democrats. It's a vocal minority and it's a growing minority. Um, and so A, I just am thinking back through history, and this is not actually to compare the geopolitical situations. It is only to compare the domestic partisan response to geopolitical situations, trying to come up with another one that that had this same partisan tinge to it. And, you know, I, I don't know, Northern Ireland and the IRA, like, did that have partisan differences here in the United States? David, you might know that better than I do. Not to this level, I, I don't think. I mean, I think you're pointing out something important. This this is this is unique and 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 unpredictable. And it's driving something that I think is deeply unhealthy in the Democratic Party. And and we have talked about this in a broader sense, but I think it's worth referencing here that both the right and the left of our political spectrum have a real anti-Semitism problem. But they are different anti-Semitism problems. Um, there's, you know, just very different forms of anti-Semitism happening. And on the left, this conversation about Israel, you can say that it's a political difference. And and this is about Israel's policies towards Palestinians, you know, territorial issues, et cetera. But if you drop below that high-level conversation, what you're seeing on the left with students at universities is real and growing anti-Semitism problem on the left. Um, And it's under this guise of anti-Israel. But as we just saw, lawsuit filed by students at George Washington University, where, asterisk, I um, am an adjunct professor, um, you know, professors, at least alleged, to be retaliating against their Jewish students in class because they're Jewish. And that professor is anti-Israel and yet the result is the retaliation against Jewish students in class. And I think that that's a real problem that the left is going to have to grapple with. Your policies are turning into something that I don't think you intend them to. Well, I, I'm glad you brought this up. Is that that's what has really frightened me. I mean, on, you know, in, in, in our country, on the left um, and, and in general, there's been this sort of um, – this effort to tie the fight for racial justice in the United States um, in a global context of fighting for minorities who are oppressed and and victimized by state-sponsored violence, um, police violence in the United States, 
violence against Palestinians and, you know, to to fight against, to fight for people who are victimized by state-sponsored violence in general is a great thing. But when that when that becomes just because people aren't honoring the nuances and understanding the differences in, in different countries, when that becomes anti-Semitic, that is frightening. And, you know, I've been in conversations with with friends and others where it's like the, the conflating the Israeli government with Jews in general goes down a really, really dangerous path. And and I agree, it's 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 a scary thing. And I, I, I wonder, Mo, like, what do lawmakers, what do other Democrats who want to fight for people in the United States who are victims of police violence and fight for Palestinians who are victimized by, you know, Israeli government policies? How do you fight that larger battle without going down a dangerous path and, and fueling anti-Semitism in our country? Oh, boy. I mean, look— Rhetoric really matters. Language really matters. We've seen that time and time again on a whole host of issues. I think it is completely legitimate to criticize even our allies on their policies. But the rhetoric used to do so, you've got to be careful so that you don't conflate the two. And and look, I think this is an issue that a lot that trips up a lot of people. I mean, we see it 100% happening from a lot of forces on the right. I mean, even the former president standing up and saying, look, I've done more for American Jews better watch themselves. I've done more to help Israel than than, than anybody. I mean, that's not a, a, an okay statement. <laughs> that's not something nope. that's going to, to help ratchet down the growing uh, uh prevalence. Of, I'm not going to say the, maybe it's not even the growing, just the more visible prevalence of anti-Semitism in this country and around the world. Um, so rhetoric matters. You know, my advice to the left is just be hyper, super careful when you're going to criticize Israel on its policies, when you're going to criticize the U.S. government's policies on Israel. Keep it focused there. Now, that doesn't mean the other side isn't going to try, right? I mean, they're, they're, the far right has been struggling politically with the issue of anti-Semitism. So they're going to attack the left whenever there's any criticism of Israel. They're going to attack the left simply to muddy the waters. Like, that's what's going to happen politically. Don't give them the opportunity to, is my advice to the left, keep it hyper-focused. All right, we are going to have to leave it there. But uh, before we move on to our rants and raves, I, I want to make an exciting announcement on this program. Moa Lathy and Sarah Isger have both agreed to join Left, Right, and Center as our regular weekly panelists. And I could not be more happy. For those of you who have been listening to the show the past few months, you have heard them. And I hope you've noticed that despite considerable differences in their opinions and ideas, uh, they have something that is really lacking these days, which is a deep respect for one another. They also, we should say, have a friendship that dates back a decade. Um, so just the the perfect people to have on a show like this where we want to have, you know, civil uh, and provocative conversations and really dig in in a respectful way. Um, so I hope you'll join me in congratulating them on their official role in Left, Right, and Center. And uh, you can count on Many more conversations like the ones we have had uh, in in recent weeks, um, including conversations about, you know, 
screech owl calls and uh, what we can learn about politics from a tree octopus. I mean, there's been some wonderful highlights. We go into life and not just politics. <laughs> Come for the politics. You never know what you're going to get. But Mo and Sarah, thank you for for agreeing to do this. I'm, I'm excited about where we're going together. Thank you. And this is sort of, I mean, Mo, like it's been over 10 years now, like David said, but this is something you and I have have always said we wanted to do. And so it's really a treat that it's coming together and it's coming together with David and here and now at a moment that I think it's even more important that it's been over the last 10 years. Yeah, I'm super excited. I I mean, I've always loved the show and I think uh, our politics needs more conversations like this where people who disagree can come together and actually talk about it and help uh, help, uh, each other understand where they're coming from. I think uh, we're, we're having fun doing it. Love doing it with David. And I always love the opportunity, Sarah, to to talk about why you're wrong, but do it in a friendly and civil way. <laughs> well, it does. Yeah. <laughs> and I do, I, you know, I, I do want to add as, as we go forward, you know, together, um, you know, I made this commitment when I started hosting the show to everyone, which was why mess with a concept that people love and have loved for a very long time. And the tradition of the show lives on. It's a place where voices from the left, right, center and beyond can come together in a safe space. But, you know, in today's political climate, I just don't feel like labels feel right. I'm struck by some of the reactions we get from listeners saying, you're not left enough or you're not right enough or you're not truly center. So I I want to honor the best traditions of the show, make sure that this is a safe space, that that the safe space that's always existed and, and that it remains safe. But labels in today's world, to me, stifle free and open conversation and, and undermines the whole mission that we're going for. So that's where we're going with the show. We're doing it with Mo and Sarah. Hope all of you, our listeners, will join us on this journey. And uh, we really appreciate you being here. And let's be clear. I'm way to the left on of Mo on like tofu animal issues. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. So labels Amen, aren't man. always accurate. Um, thank you for saying <laughs> that, Sarah. All right, it is time for our uh, famous left, right, and center rants and raves. Um, Sarah Isker, I'll start with you today. Oh, I have a rave. And <laughs> it's a little embarrassing, but here I am taping this podcast next to a two pound, technically 1.87 pounds of cheddar goldfish. And this is just a love note to the snack that is goldfish. I think it is the most perfect snack. Um, Amazingly, this snack has been around for 65 years. However, those little eyes and smiles that are on 40% of the goldfish has actually only been around since we've been adults. Um, And that makes sense because I didn't remember them as a kid. And I was like, did I just miss that these goldfish were smiling at me? But you know what? Today, I eat them a lot and I do appreciate that they're smiling at me. And there's just no better salty, quick snack to get you through your day. So thank you, Goldfish. I'm going to go buy some now. They're so good. Better. I am not sponsored by Pepperidge Farm. And <laughs> Pepperidge Farm, please do not send me more Goldfish. Two pounds is enough for a long time. But um, nevertheless, I do love them. They're so good. Mo? If they do, send some my way. Yeah, um, me too. <laughs> um, I've got a rave as well. Jacinda Ardern, the prime minister of New Zealand, the oh, youngest yes. ever prime minister of New Zealand, a woman who's jumped into, leapt into uh, international prominence with her handling of uh, 
COVID in New Zealand, with her handling of some tragic violent crimes in New Zealand, uh, and just being one badass woman leader, just announced this week that she would not stand for re-election, catching everybody in her party, in her nation, and around the world off guard. Her reason was she just didn't have enough left in the tank. And there are some who are trying to make this a political thing, as her party is suffering some, some a dip in the polls, but uh, she remains incredibly popular. She just made a personal decision, a personal decision about herself and about her family and standing aside that level of self-awareness and doing what's right for oneself and their party. Uh, we could stand to have more of that in politics. So yet another reason uh, to hold her up. We should send her a box of goldfish. We should send her a box of goldfish (laughs) to thank her for her service. Um, I I don't know if this is a rant or a rave. It's it's kind of a rave for Congressman Matt Gaetz, um, which feels, you know, a little unexpected, but it's just for one specific thing, which is his push to keep the cameras rolling all over the House floor. I, I I mean, we talked about this recently, like during the whole speaker election time when no one was in charge of the House. C-SPAN was able to have cameras everywhere. It's why we got all those looks at, you know, lawmakers having, you know, these conversations. Um, Now it would, McCarthy would need to allow cameras all over the place. And Gates said that, you know, his constituents were saying to him that it was great to see how their leaders communicate with one another. And it's humanizing. I want to turn this a little bit. I agree that it's good to see that, but I would love this to be a way to hold lawmakers accountable for looking like they are humans. Like if they know that the cameras are rolling, and this goes back to to what we've talked about before, like that it used to be that, you know, lawmakers would have to live in Washington, D.C. and spend time at bars together. Like let's hold them accountable for having to be respectful human beings when they're doing their jobs um, in the Capitol and having cameras all over the place to catch those moments might be one way to do that. So both as a journalist and as someone who uh, hopes that there can be more humanity in politics, I'm all for keeping those cameras rolling. Okay, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Sarah Isger and Mo Lathy. I'm so excited that you two are on board. I also want to say that this show is made by a wonderful team of people. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Singer Schiff. Our production assistant is Alexander Applegate. Our executive producer is Arnie Seipel. And the show is recorded and mixed by Matt Schwartz. I'm looking at all of them through a glass wall here in our studios in Santa Monica, California. You all are awesome, and I can't say enough about what you do. Todd M. Simon composed the theme music for our show. Left, Right, and Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media. I am David Green. Thanks for being here, and come back next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 